Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the best night of the week, our study of the Evergatinos, and we're picking up once again here with uh, hypothesis number 19, and we've been discussing obedience, uh, its value, and how it is attained in one's life, and we're on page 144, for those who've just joined, about halfway down the page with number four. And again, here in the first few moments, I'll be letting people join here, some of the latecomers. But we'll go ahead and get started with the text. Uh, Abba Moses said to a certain brother, come, my brother, into the obedience to to the truth, where there is humility, where there is strength, where there is joy, where there is patience, where there is forbearance, where there is brotherly concern, where there is contrition, where there is love. For he who has perfect obedience has come to realize all the commandments of God. This is a striking thing that comes up over and again, over and over again here within this hypothesis, that to fulfill obedience, to live in obedience, is to fulfill the commandments, and that it is to, in a sense, to become a confessor of the faith in the most powerful way, because in embracing it and living it fully, one imitates Christ who is obedient to the Heavenly Father. And so in some sense, the, the authors see obedience as uh, sort of encapsulating all the commandments, but also uh, the virtues themselves, that uh, it involves the setting aside of the will, that in so many other ways within the spiritual life, even in the pursuit of that which is good, we can willfully pursue it or pursue the means to it. But obedience Uh, sort of cuts that aspect off right from the beginning. Any kind of willful or self-centered or self-seeking motivation, uh, and one places oneself under the guidance of another and allows oneself to be formed by that. And so all of these different virtues he puts forward here begin to emerge within the heart. Humility, which is truthful living, you know, that as we begin to uh, place ourselves under obedience to another, Uh, We begin to see those things within ourselves uh, uh, clearly that are willful and that are self-centered. But uh, often, as I've mentioned in the past, living in obedience to an elder meant the revelation of one's thoughts uh, to them almost on a daily basis. So it uh, was a a seeking 
to live in the fullness of the truth, to allow nothing within the heart to remain hidden. There's strength and joy and patience to be found within it as well. So there's a kind of internal freedom that comes from living under obedience to another that allows one to run swiftly, but also to be free from anxiety, uh, but also gives one a, a sense of strength in the spiritual life, that we are unburdened uh, by the thing that really weighs us down the most, uh, which is ourself, the own, our own ego. And so we can run with a kind of swiftness within the spiritual life, uh, but also uh, be free from the anxiety that often uh, can sort of weigh upon us because we are uncertain about whether or not we are doing the will of God or doing our own. So when we subject ourselves to the, the judgment of another and the guidance of, of another, there's a kind of freedom that comes to us. Forbearance, that having this confidence in the value of obedience allows us to persevere through the difficult times of life. I think so often, uh, you know, we stress our, our own rights, our own freedom. We place a kind of value on it so, so greatly that the moment that we've come up against an obstacle in the spiritual life, we will often want to change the externals of our life very quickly, to make a choice to move in another direction, to alter our feelings. This is a common thing for us. We feel that when we emotionally, we are downtrodden, that changing the externals of our life will bring about an internal change emotionally for us. And it might do so for a short while, but eventually we see that we typically take the same issues with us wherever we go. And uh, we take ourselves with us wherever we go. And so, uh, Obedience frees us up from that pull uh, to change our external circumstances. Uh, where there is love, too, that living in this perfect obedience, uh, we develop a greater capacity to serve others and to be able to look at, at them. Uh, let's put it this way, that when we don't allow ourselves the freedom to simply set aside someone, or to set aside others and to move away. If we commit ourselves in obedience uh, to live under certain individuals, then we are compelled to really seek to love them fully and overcome any kind of animosity or harsh judgment that we might have of the other. If we could pick up and move to, for a monk, if we could pick up to move to another monastery or another community, or if we could you know, break our, our vows and not be committed to them or be obedient to them, uh, then we aren't compelled to really strive uh, to love the other and to overcome the things within us that uh, prevent us from loving. And so you begin to see already in this first paragraph while, uh, why obedience was so valued, that in it is realized all of the, all of the commandments. Daniel. Um. The, the topic of obedience. So we were, um, we, we usually, or a lot of times we read, like uh, my kids have, they got these like saint coloring books or something. Um, and it's like a saint every day uh, for the year. And they're like, they're, they're, um, <laughs> they're like written weirdly pretty deep at times. But anyways, one of the saints to, to color, it was, I believe yesterday was uh, St. John of Egypt and, uh, and how he, um, he he was told by 
uh, an elder to go plant a dead stick somewhere in the desert and water it. And to do that for, I, I can't remember how long it was like at least a year. And the thing that's so striking, which also like kind of with this and the topic of obedience, um, was that like, you know, I guess I was thinking about that cause, cause this topic's been obedience and I was thinking about that too. And I feel like we're, we're really, um, good at trying to nuance obedience, you know, like to how, as long as it makes sense, you know, like as long as it makes sense. And, and I, and maybe it's not directly related to what Abba Moses was saying here in a sense, but in like, just to the general theme of this obedience. And when I read that, it really like stood out to me because here is something that's actually insane. It makes no sense as a dead stick. And he was told to do it. But when he, you know, when he learned, he learned to not question essentially like, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? He just sort of did it. And so I don't know. I just, it, it, I guess it really does play into this too, because in this Abba Moses saying like, come into this thing, right? Like come into this thing that is obedience and through obedience, you will find, you know, um, joy and patience and forbearance and all these things that then later in life allowed John of Egypt to like, struggle through things when when that elder was no longer there around to help him um and i just i just find that really interesting kind of like you know how it's how i feel like this is very specific in a way and that story helps highlight the practicality of obedience even though it doesn't you know make sense or seem reasonable right yeah you could see why living in the common life and internalizing the lessons of the common life and in particular the lessons of obedience why that would be so important before one would embrace a life of greater solitude that uh, often that one will be dealing with the, the temptations of the demons and so to have deeply ingrained within one's heart and one's mind the lessons of obedience becomes very important especially when the demons are putting forth, forth their lies only one who's been formed so deeply in, in this, the humility that flows from this, living in, a, in the light of the truth, is going to be able to endure those kinds of tests. Uh, I think you're speaking of uh, John the Dwarf, or sometimes called just simply John the, the Short. Uh, but yes, it was for a very long time, and that the, the branch sprouted uh, after that length of period of time. And I think it does seem absurd to us. And I think some of the lessons from the fathers show us that in the spiritual life and spiritual battle, that trusting in our own judgment or our feelings, our own sensibilities, often can lead to a kind of delusion that we aren't capable of seeing the full truth. We might see partial ends. And so we can very easily be uh, corrupted or led down the wrong path by these partial truths. You know, that would be one of the ways that the, the demons would seek to trip us up, to reveal some aspect of something and convince us that we see it so clearly, we see it so perfectly, and so then make a harsh judgment about another or, or to take a path that really isn't in accord with the will of God, but seems so true, so good in our own mind, when in reality, we're only seeing one very small part of it. And so obedience, I think, teaches an individual, you know, very early on, you know, that one is dependent upon listening to God on a very deep level of trusting him, seeking to do his will 
And one begins to do that in obedience to those that God has placed over them for their guidance and their formation. And, uh, and this is why, again, why, you know, they've said so often that before one would embrace a life of greater solitude, that the heart would have to be formed very deeply in this virtue in order to be able to safely go out uh, into the, the, the deeper desert and to live in that greater solitude. Okay. So let's let some of the others uh, unpack it for us here a little bit, and then we'll come back for any more questions and comments. Once four brothers from a certain skeet wearing animal skins for clothing went to sing Pambo the Great. Each of them revealed to Pambo the virtue of the other. One had great faith, the second possessed absolutely no property, the third had attained to great love for others, and the fourth had 22 straight years, uh, had for 22 straight years been in obedience to an elder. After he had heard them, Abba Pambo said to them, I assure, assure you that the virtue of this fourth monk is greater than the virtues of you others since each of you, regardless of the virtue that you possess, attain to it by, the will, by, your own, by his own will. This monk, however, has cut out his will and does the will of another. And for this reason, he is your superior. Those who obey are confessors of the faith, since they preserve their obedience until the end. So this is what I mentioned earlier. They become confessors of the faith. They become, they most perfectly bear witness to the truth of the gospel because they imitate Christ in this fundamental truth of being obedient to the others. Christ was obedient to the Father. And so it wasn't simply, you know, a kind of slavish obedience, you know, agreeing to whatever somebody else was saying simply for the sake of doing so. Uh, because, you know, I think a person could be, could do that on a certain level and really interiorly be, you know, be doing it in, in for passive aggressive reasons, never learn really the lesson of obedience, to do that in love and trust in the one to whom they are obedient. So our obedience is to be conformed to that of Christ and uh, who, whose very food was to do the will of the Father. And so this young one, and as we will hear uh, in similar stories coming up, uh, that even those who are younger who do this uh, attain to greater virtue than others who, by their own will, pursue the, the path of virtue by the, the paths that they choose for themselves. So obedience is often put forward as the, the quickest path to, to the life of sanctity. And slowly, I think we're beginning to see, see why, not, 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 not only because um, one is listening to another dutifully, but because one is conforming oneself to Christ, to the heavenly bridegroom. Carol. Uh, I just had a, a quick question. Um, one is if you could just comment on, so um, I'm thinking of, and Theophan, him advising Anastasia to be obedient to her parents. And um, part of the reason for that seemed to be that they were good and holy. And, and it seems like in this circumstance as well, the implication is that the elder is good and holy and worthy of obedience. And 
I was wondering if you could speak to the circumstance where someone might find themselves um, obedient to someone who maybe is imperfect, you know, um, out of love for God and out of love for maybe their vocation or like even obedient to circumstances in which one might find themselves like a lay person, for example, a parent, um, a spouse, um, like being obedient um, in that context. That I think what we find consistently in the fathers, that there is a value to that, that despite the worthiness of the one uh, under whom under whom we find ourselves in obedience, that the, the value for it, for ourselves and for, for the, the purifying of our own will and the purifying of our own heart remains. And so if the person lacks a kind of virtue or clear judgment or you know, has a, an irascible character, that doesn't change the, the value of our obedience. We might want to be free of it, and we might feel that there are unjust decisions made or things that affect us in, in ways that prevent us from pursuing a path that would lead to, to greater joy or fulfillment, even, even on a spiritual level. We might feel that for ourselves too, that if I just had this greater freedom, then I could live this life that I could shape for myself and really grow in virtue because I wouldn't be weighed down by the burden of this other person that I would have a greater joy within my heart. Well, you know, the reason for the lack of our joy isn't really necessarily the other person. The reason for the lack of our joy often is because we are not living our life fully in Christ. We are not deeply immersed with him in prayer or lack faith in a certain way uh, in him that we, we see our, our life as having its value and our identity being found within him. And so we can very much still be tied to the things of this world uh, and live the spiritual life in a very worldly way when we are driven by, again, still our own sensibilities about what would be good or what would be valuable or what would be the cross that would be the best one for us to carry rather than to be, have to be with this annoying person. Now, of course, there can be, you know, and I think this is where spiritual counsel comes in. I mean, if there are abusive, obviously, relationships and things like that, or something that is, you know, clearly toxic or violent, then, you know, one would have to reconsider that. But I think, you know, the monks chose to come to the monastery, or they chose to go to the desert, precisely to live in this fashion. They chose to bind themselves to this reality. And in so many other ways, you know, priests do that in the world and uh, married couples do that in the world too, you know, to live within the context of their, their vocation. And inevitably they're all going to undergo the same trials, you know, where the experience of that reality involves a kind of dying to one's own will or the ego has to be set aside in one way or another. Thinking of marriage, you know, the two become one. You know, that's if you step back from the other, it's sort of a frightening thing when you think, you know, when two strong willed people come together, it, you know, how, how's that going to take place? 
unless there is this spirit, you know, we had mentioned last time, Chris is some talking about this mutual obedience that husband and wife have uh, in regards to each other, that it only, you know, that the deepest bond comes through their living in that way, in this mutual obedience. Uh, and so uh, I think we can rationalize very easily into thinking, again, that obedience is not the right thing here, you know, or holding fast to this commitment isn't a good thing, because I, I really feel that I'm being stifled or suffocated in this particular reality, and even on a spiritual level. And it can feel like that to us, you know, we can feel like we're languishing, and that God feels absent to us, and there, you know, a deep and sort of abiding sadness can overcome us, despondency, and that we, you know, really begin to wonder, am I wasting my life, you know, on this path? And it's, it's very hard. And I think, uh, and so when I hear the list that Abba Moses puts forward here, I think just on the surface, it can, feel, it can seem hard to believe that, that ob obedience can bear this kind of fruit in a person's life, because I think maybe in our weaker kind of obedience or weaker assent to the, the realities in our life or the, or the things that we are committed to uh, doesn't allow us to experience that full fruit, you know, that on a deeper level, we don't really have that spirit of obedience. You know, there's part of us that can be railing against the very things that we have committed ourselves to at another point in our life. You know, when you think of the young priest walking down the aisle, you know, for his ordination, you know, there's a big smile on his face and all the older priests are smiling because they know what's coming down the road, you know, for, for this poor young guy. And, uh, and, and so we have to be careful. You know, I think emotions can be very, very powerful indicators for us you know, in particular, like of injustice, you know, that they can really speak a truth to us, but they are not the only source of truth for us and have to be subject, uh, you know, not only to reason, but I think to the guidance uh, of another, you know, the counsel of another, uh, because they can be very powerful and pull us in one direction or another. Ambrose. Hey, yeah, I, <clears throat> it's an interesting thing to think about because if someone is, if we believe someone to be holy and we believe someone to have good, good judgment, mm -hmm. then it's not a, much of a sacrifice for us to follow, you know, what they instruct us to do. It's much more difficult when it's not that way, when we think that they may be in error or we don't really respect them. <clears throat> then it's a lot harder for us to say, you know, I'm going to submit my will and my judgment to yours. And then there's virtue in that act of sort of like punishing your own will, if you will. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, with the, all the caveats of not, you know, not being told to do something sinful or being an abusive relationship, but in general, I think, especially for us today in our culture with the assertiveness and, it seems to be that like the default is like my way or the highway and it's everywhere. And so for us to practice that is like 
not only for ourselves good, but can be a, a witness that like, there's something beyond just what I want and, and what I think is my right and things like that. That's right. Yeah, I think it is particularly difficult in our culture. And one begins to, to think on a practical level, how does one form and shape uh, this, this virtue within the heart or an appreciation of it? And I think it begins and needs to begin very early on in life, you know, within the context of family life itself, that there is a kind of order and harmony there that begins to exist, you know, a way of living one's life that ultimately is directed toward God. But uh, within the family life itself, we, we see this attentiveness to the will of God and the desire to live in accord with his will that begins to shape the, the mindset of the family as a whole and shape the way that they interact with each other and how the children interact with the parents. And they see how the, the parents interact with each other. You know, children, children, it's through mimesis imitation that they learn, you know, through this mimicking of their parents, first and foremost. And when they see, you know, that which is virtuous, that's what they begin to, to imitate. And they begin to see the truth and the beauty of it and experience something of it, too. And so even as they age, you know, children can begin to see that even when it's time uh, difficult to be obedient to one's parents, they can make that ascent because of the relationship of trust and, and the experience of the value of that over the course of time, that they know of their parents' love and they can trust in, in their judgment, even when it seems to go against what they want to do at the time. What can override that is the, the sense of of this love for the of one's parents and the desire to be obedient to them to do what is pleasing to them and you know when we do think back to you brought up theophan and anastasia and his counseling her to be obedient to her parents that it was really putting the brakes on her longing to do something that she really you know had wanted to there was an enthusiasm within her heart to enter into the religious life. And yet I think Theophan saw that even that enthusiasm had to be shaped by something. Uh, and, it, and as is true with so, so often, even with our virtues. So even her zeal, her enthusiasm for God, her enthusiasm for the religious life had to be formed and shaped by the grace of God and under the obedience to her parents so that when she entered into religious life and the more challenging obedience of living uh, within community that her heart would have already been formed uh, in some way to be able to sort of take that up within the community and embrace it uh, as she entered into the novitiate and the greater formation that would go on there. And so if he was simply to tell her, go ahead, you know, rush into that, that it would be unlikely that she would persevere within it. And so, you know, we, we, you know, have these little examples to take hold of, but I think maybe in our own life, uh, I think even in parenting, I think a lot of, there seems to be a lot of confusion out there now too. And depending upon, I think, people's experience of their parents, how they were formed and raised, how their parents treated them or how their parents engaged each other, plus everything in the culture that is being put forward to parents too, you know, and 
that uh, about discipline and things such as that. There isn't sort of this culture or even this frame with it, within which to understand it is where we are sort of creating for ourselves here. You know, this might be the first time that we are sort of deeply trying to enter into an understanding of obedience and how it would apply to our day-to-day life. And so, you know, I don't think there certainly is a culture out there in the secular world that really would shape it in the way that we're talking about here or the way that many of the saints would talk about it. And so I think it really has to begin within the family because that would, that's really where the foundation uh, for the life of faith is laid. And so generations of being immersed in this and allowing it to form oneself, uh, you know, then we pass it on to others. The same is true within religious life. I remember reading a little bit something about Padre Pio and his saying, you know, already back in his time, he could see a, a shift in how the younger ones were being formed, you know, and being sort of concerned about that in terms of their capacity to live out their vocation fully in terms of the pursuit of virtue, because there wasn't this kind of spirit of obedience that he was seeing there that was part of his formation. And I think that's true. I mean, I think a lot of times emphasis is put on talents, abilities, skills that people might have, personal qualities that they have. And uh, and so it can often make it very difficult then when, there's, when a, they enter into community to be formed in the spirit of obedience, of being under, you know, a superior, but then also, also like a novice master as well, that uh, everything, especially, you know, those, in, you know, are coming out of the college life, you know, this sort of unbounded freedom, but also, you know, the emphasis upon one's own judgment, intellect, you know, that these become the, the dominant things and or the lens through which they are viewing things. And so when you try to enter into religious life or the formation of religious life, it can be very, very difficult. You know, where, you know, it's, you know, if they're asked to take out the garbage or something like that, then, you know, all of a sudden they think that you're treating them like a lackey, you know, and, you know, I, I've been trained to do all this and you're asking me to empty the dishwasher. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it can be pretty hard at that point to, to form an individual. Ren. I am putting my comp, my question in the comment box because my internet is terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't see it. Oh, uh, there we go. Okay. How does one reclaim the spirit of obedience once it has been lost? Once you have let resentment and even contempt of a particular authority figure to establish itself? It's a good question because it's difficult, I think, to do so once we've allowed that spirit of resentment to enter into our hearts. Because all, all of a sudden, the, the lens has changed for us and we view everything that is being asked or view the individual through this negative lens. And so even when they are doing good or working hard or what they ask is certainly a just thing, there can be a, a fundamental resistance that rises up within us, uh, a kind of negativity that prevents us from living in that, that spirit of obedience. 
And so, you know, we lose, you know, once we've lost this joy and patience and forbearance, it becomes more and more difficult. So if we, if we take hold of that resentment that you mentioned here in your question and sort of nurture it over time, you know, through just allowing the thoughts to percolate within our minds and we've, where we find ourselves ruminating on the past wounds, it becomes very difficult then to step out of that and not have that be the thing that shapes our identity. I think what, what does help us, you know, to step out of that is to refocus ourselves upon Christ himself. And uh, especially in the life of prayer, meditation on, on the passion itself, uh, you know, and uh, say like it, adoration itself, we see how he even makes himself obedient to us, how he gives himself to us. You know, it begins to reform and reshape the heart. And uh, I think even to purify, you know, our, our perception of the other. And, and then if we can begin to pray, I think, for those that we, you know, where that kind of resentment has developed and with whom we have to work, then our hearts, again, can begin to soften towards them. Uh, where we, I was reading something recently about it, uh, talking about speaking positively about the individual to another or doing positive things for the other with, for whom we hold that resentment, that these small things begin to free our hearts from the resentment that can cling, can cling to them. And it's hard. You know, I think when our, the heart has been wounded uh, like that, you know, we, in that vulnerability, vulnerability, sometimes we will shut down towards the other person. But I think even towards uh, God in the sense of allowing him to touch that, uh, because there can be a point where it hurts so good. Uh, you know, it's like we take a delight in resenting <laughs> others because they're like some other forms of sin and some of the other passions, you know, that giving free reign to our resentment of another and ripping them to shreds in our own mind or finding somebody who feels the very same way about that individual and being able to talk uh, about them. You know, there's a kind of morbid delight that we find in that because it, it confirms us in our view and our judgment. But in the end, it only, again, deepens the hold that that resentment has, has over us a kind of group think can, can begin to develop there. And then it's very, very difficult. There has to be a, a conscious concerted effort to step away from it. And the way I think that we step away from it is to silence, first of all, the one thing that we control is our, our speech. You know, our hearts might still be raging towards the other in, in that feeling of resentment, but not vocalizing it to, to others is often the first step where we begin to move away from it. Is it Josh or Josie? I don't know. J-O-S, still there with us? Could be Joseph. Okay, maybe we'll go on to Daniel first. 
Um, what, what would you say about, um, like, if you could comment on this, I guess, because listening to this conversation, it kind of was like what I was remembering was, um, I can't remember exactly where, and I'm probably forgetting the context, but St. Isaac had said, um, like, he would speak positively about the remembrance of, of one's own sin. Um, and when I, you know, like going, you know, thinking through challenges to obedience and challenges with resentment and things like that, it seems to me that like a lot of times it's, it, it puts, it puts a distinction between like myself and whoever I may resent in the moment or myself and who I, you know, like, obviously, again, if somebody's just telling you to do something blatantly wrong, you know, like, you know, yeah, that's, that's different. But I feel like a lot of times, at least with myself, it's more like a preference thing, right? Like, you know, that's nah, not my preference, if I'm being perfectly honest, or, or it might be, I think I'm right. And I might be right. But but in all of those types of circumstances, it's like I'm put, making this distinction between myself and the other or the person that, you know, I may resent right now. Like I may see everything about that person that bothers me, upsets me, whatever it is. Right. And within all of that, it's like it's a remembrance of all this, like these things about the other and it's a complete like forgetfulness of oneself almost though in that same moment instead of an identification with you know but I can I can kind of understand even if I can't understand that specific circumstance like you know that remembrance that we we all share in kind of a common burden of like the whole world can real quick get filled with resentment if all we're doing is seeing each other's flaws, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. And, and um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, does that make sense? What sort of what I'm yeah, saying? It does. And, you know, I think sometimes God will allow us to, you know, experience ourselves uh, being in a, a relationship with someone who's irascible uh and sometimes allow that to linger because we lack a certain virtue or that there's an imperfection within it you know of our humility or maybe there's that very same thing within us that god is revealing to us very clearly in the actions of another and we come to see it you know almost see ourselves in them almost as a mirror being reflected back to us you know oh how arrogant they are how prideful they are when in reality what we're seeing is a reflection of our, our, ourselves. And so, again, we have, you know, part of being able to enter into this is trusting in the providence of God, that the hand of God's providence is in all of these encounters. And so to find oneself engaging another person where even where we think our judgment is right, and it may be right, and yet still having to engage that person in charity and humility and maybe being able, to, being willing to set aside our ability to move forward to something that is good and have that being delayed indefinitely in order to preserve charity 
that is of greater value than fighting and pressing up against and battling for it and even winning, you know, in the sense of getting our own job or, or getting our own uh, will satisfied, being able to do what we want. You know, often we will find that pursuing that path freely doesn't bear the fruit that we imagine, precisely because we fought, fought for it in, a, in this kind of willful fashion. And so I think God will allow these things to, and relationships to exist, these things to happen within, within marriages, within religious communities, whatever it might be, or at work, to, in order to shape something more deeply within our, our hearts that we, we aren't seeing. You know, something in the deep recesses of our hearts that God only shines light upon, you know, uh, over the course of time, and we gradually come to see it as we are able. And, you know, there is this kind of fundamental resistance that we, we can have to seeing those, those things. And, uh, and so it can take a person, you know, a longer or shorter time, depending upon how willing we are to, to acknowledge them. Let's see the the I think Josh, who could not go uh, forward his question, did in typing here. He said, "I wanted I wanted to ask about whether when one is born into a culture, family structure, and many generations that is filled with this pattern of resentment, lack of obedience, etc., if it is then even possible to really change without enormous amounts of effort." In our culture and my generation, it is very common, and it seems for many of us, like outside of a very concerted effort, it is nearly impossible to break out of the habitual uh, attitude that's been solidified in the unconscious. Wow, very good. Yes, you know, I think there, you know, just as we see on a psychological level, there are historical and generational aspects that affect whole families in the way that they relate to each other. And yet I think we, we see and understand the nature and the power of God's grace in such a way that even these historical and generational things can be overcome by the grace of God. That one who is completely given over to God can begin to redirect the, 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 the movement of an entire family in terms of, 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 uh, patterns of interaction that have existed through from generations in religious communities that can exist too, you know, that often there can be profound disorder, if you haven't already heard that or figured that out, profound, profound disorders within religious communities that can be generational too, and it, it profoundly affect the way that others interact with each other. And that's passed on through those who are are older and superiors and down to the lower ones because they're engaging the younger ones in this way that sometimes can be very disordered, as, as you mentioned. And so uh, more than enormous effort, which is true, you know, I think this is why Christ is agonized to enter by the narrow door. We really have to give ourselves over in a complete and radical way to him in our lives. But it's really the action of God's grace or, you know, through those who are responsive to his will, that, that those patterns are broken or even can be healed, you know, where the relationships know such rifts that uh, those rifts can be healed over the course of time. Uh, 
and and sometimes not. You know, I think that's the reality of it. I think our responsibility is to to seek in our own time to bring healing to those historical and generational wounds. And whether or not it's accomplished in our life, in our life is insignificant. What is what is important is our fidelity and our our desire to love and give ourselves in love to others. So whether or not it's received or seems to bear fruit in our own eye, it might bear fruit for further generations. So within a religious community, you know, there, there can be this shift and movement to a more ordered and loving community that is more faithful to its charism over the course of time that one might who one might never come to see in his own time. The fruit of it might be for the community in, in the future, but that does not, because it's hidden or never seen by himself or others does not lessen the value of it within the eyes of God. And this is where one has to have great faith, you know, that we aren't acting simply for ourselves, but for others. In the same way that parents act for their children, they make all these enormous sacrifices in order that their children might have something better. And oftentimes it's seen in a material kind of way, but I think more importantly, it should be seen in a spiritual and emotional kind of way that they might come to see their identity, especially their identity in Christ with a greater clarity and fullness. And, uh, and this is what I think obedience does. You know, when we are imitating Christ and that self-emptying love that we really see from the incarnation on, that this is what's really redemptive. It looks like can look like a failure within the life of the world, but you know what Christ did, you know, brought about the world's redemption, and you know was seen but seen in his own time as a, a failure, you know, in in terms of what it, you know how his life ended, crucified as a criminal, as a lawbreaker, you know, certainly not fitting the image of a Messiah and the the minds of his own people, betrayed by his own, you know, by his disciples. So what greater love is there than to lay down one's life for one's brothers? And I think, you know, when we look at family life or we look at religious community, we think, you know, what greater love is there to labor and to give oneself in love, even when that labor and that love is not acknowledged or appreciated or seen, you know, or quickly forgotten. You know, you begin, you know, as I've gotten a little bit older, I'm not like ancient yet. <laughs> Although some people might seem that way. But over time, I've, I, you know, what I've come to see is that things are forgotten very quickly. They become history. And for some, they become history that one has never been associated with at all and has no appreciation of it all. It's like it never happened. And that can be a really humbling experience. You could go through hell and back. You know, parents probably know this as well. They might have lived in poverty, have scraped and put things together, you know, you know, to put a household together, to keep their family fed, maybe to help educate their children, all these enormous sacrifices. And the kids never know it. 
and they might, you know, not even appreciate it. They sweat blood, you know, as it were, but it's, it's forgotten or never seen. And it's a humbling reality, and it could give rise to that feeling of resentment unless it is seen within the context of the life of Christ and of faith and the spirit of, uh, of obedient love. You know, that that's why it's being done, not in order that it might be seen or appreciated by, by others. Let's see. And... I hope I'm saying, I hope it is Josh. And if it's Josie or somebody like it, I'm sorry, but your hand is still up. Do you have another question or was I, was that clear enough? Okay. Well, we'll go on and read a little, little bit more while we have some time here and we can come back for some further questions. Abba Rufus said that he who remains in obedience to his spiritual father has a greater reward than he who stays to himself as an anchorite in the desert. So it's a, here's an extraordinary thing, you know, that because certainly the aeromedical life, uh, you know, was seen as having this extraordinary value to give oneself over completely to God and to live in this profound solitude. But there's also, I think, a tendency maybe to romanticize that and uh, over and above the common life and the obedience that is an essential element of that life. And, uh, and it, so it's refreshing, to, I think, to find it here that they, they saw the value of obedience so clearly that unless they, the lesson person is definitely called to the, the life of solitude and has been by God and has been formed and shaped by that obedience, that staying in a religious community and living in obedience has greater value than going off into, into the desert. And so really, in essence, the safer path uh, and the path that's more, more likely to bear greater fruit is to stay right where you are and to live the common life and to have that shape the mind and the heart because it's living and moving among others that shapes, you know, that sort of knocks off the rough edges, that smooths off the rough edges on us, you know, especially if we give ourselves over and strive to give ourselves over to it fully. The same Abba related to his disciples something that had been told to him by one of the fathers. I was taken up, recounted this father to the Abba, into heaven and saw four categories of men. In the first category, I saw a man who had been ill, who, but who, despite his illness, pleased God. In the second category was a man who had shown hospitality to the brothers, receiving them with willingness and caring for them. And the third category was one who lived in the desert alone and saw no man. And in the fourth category was the one who willingly obeyed a spiritual father and submitted to him in everything for the sake of the Lord. Of these four categories of men, the fourth, that is the man of obedience, wore a gold medallion around his neck and was, was greater in glory than the others. As soon as I saw his glory, continued the Abba, I asked my guide, how is it that this one, who is the youngest, has more glory than the others? 
My guide answered, because the one who practiced hospitality and the anchorite in the desert chose these virtues with their own will. The one in obedience, however, abandoned his will wholly and depended on God and his spiritual father. Thus, for this reason, his self-denial has been more greatly glorified than that of the others. So depending, so it's not only the abandoning of the will that often seeks to guide and direct us, but the dependence upon God that that fosters, that when we set aside our own willfulness, we have to cleave to God in the life of prayer. And, and so even though these men were obviously very virtuous, you know, showing this great hospitality, love for the brothers, the life of an anchorite, or enduring illness itself, which is an extraordinary thing because it's typically, it's not chosen either. But all of these things are surpassed by the one who gives himself over in obedience to the other. And because in a greater sense, not, not only does it lead us away from you know, the you know, self-focus, but it leads us to cling to God because we begin to realize it's only by the grace of God that we can possibly fulfill this that we can only imitate Christ in the, this fashion, but by the grace and the strength that he, he gives us. And so it's shaping a much, perhaps a, a much different view of obedience for, for ourselves than we might first think of it. Because I think I, the word conjures up all these different images for us. It has all these different connotations. And sometimes it can seem simply like a slavishness or being a doormat for, for others. And, you know, in religious life, you know, it can never be that because it's not going, if, if a community is trying to form an individual, it's not by crushing them and their identity. You know, it's, that's not going to form a mind or a heart that knows how to love and to give itself in love. And, and what we're seeing here, I think, in these little stories is something much different emerging, that there is this, you know, conforming to Christ himself, that there is a rootedness and love for God and the desire to do God's will that is shaping it. And similarly, and those who are responsible for shaping it, this is what they would want to be helping to foster, even in what they a request of the other to do, you know, that they're not trying to beat them down. You know, it's not the Marines, you know, in the sense that they are trying to strip them from self-identity so that they can become one fighting machine, you know, as a unit, you know, and, uh, you know, that that's not, that's not Christian obedience. It's the Christian obedience is distinctive. And it's Christ-like, it's cruciform, and it's its very nature in the sense of being this self-emptying love for the other. Okay. I think Eric, or was it Eric or Rachel who had their hand up first? I think it was Eric and then Rachel. Okay. Oh, hello, Father. So I think, um, actually, I think, even for for laymen, there there are quite a, a a few more opportunities for obedience than 
than um, than we might think, especially I mean within the church. So um, this this is not super well known. Um, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure you know people know about it or are aware of it, but in case not, um, there's uh, you know there there are many practices that the church strongly recommends. And so I think if you take on all of those practices, which the church strongly recommends as your, as, you know, as something that you do, then it is a form of obedience, right? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And so, I mean, we don't have that many requirements. Um, you know, that's kind of how things are right now. We have moral, the moral law and things like that, but we do have things that are strongly recommended. And so people, you know, some examples of that would be things like fasting during Lent, all of Lent, um, fasting from food, you know, having two, um, two little collations that don't add up to a meal and then um, having one actual meal um, and also um, abstaining from meat during all Fridays of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all strongly recommended. Um, people, you know, this is like Paul the Sixth talked about the first one and the second one. I think it's the USCCB recommends it. Um, so, and these are ways to move away from from just choosing things for yourself and obeying the the church and the wishes of the church and things like this. Um, and there there are many other things like this out there that are just kind of like, you know. Not, not so well known. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think when we sort of embrace our identity uh, as Christians and as Catholics, there's more than enough, I think, to help shape that identity and form the mind and the heart. I think part of what the, the council desired to, uh, to take place is for us, though, you know, to go back to the sources, scripture itself, the fathers, as, as we're doing here, in order to look more clearly at the, the reason for this kind of, of obedience. Why would we would take up all of these things and in what spirit we would take them up? So we wouldn't fall simply into a kind of ritualism or, or legalism, but that we would be doing these things out of love and conformity ultimately to Christ, which I think is what is being put forward here in the most powerful way in the few paragraphs that we've considered tonight, that they become confessors of the faith because they emulate Christ, that in their way of life, that uh, they manifest Christ to the world in this very powerful way, in this self-emptying love and obedient love to the Father. And I think, you know, what the church was seeing is that there were many who were embracing all these different practices of the faith and yet not understanding why it was that they were doing them, that there could, there can easily become a disconnect between what we are doing and our relationship to Christ. And I think establishing this, you know, connection and understanding with what has been revealed to us by God in, in Christ uh, and having that shape, the practices that we we take up. So, for example, like the fa- fasting, that we would go back t- to Scripture and we would look at what Christ Himself said about fasting. And I often find that to be the most powerful example. You know, when he's a- he's asked about it himself, 
And he goes through this whole thing. Well, it's not appropriate that they're fasting. They have the bridegroom with them. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. That there's this whole new fasting that begins to emerge that is distinctively Christian and directed toward Christ. That one would begin to experience not only the, the, the discipline of the fasting and even the setting aside of the will, but would begin to, to experience within the hunger, this hunger for Christ and what he alone could satisfy. So everything, it becomes deeply relational in that sense. And I think this is part of, again, when we're speaking even in, in terms of the obedience to the church, this is part of what she desires for us, that we would be uh, deeply rooted in these practices and in the sense of having a clear understanding as to why we're, we are taking them up in the first place. So they don't become disconnected or become simply matters of endurance uh, that we're embracing. Ambrose, R Rachel fell off the screen again. So maybe she'll, she'll jump back on, but go ahead. Yeah, hey. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because there's another sort of way of thinking about obedience in, the, in this context, which is for those who are attracted to like more, do more or to do the old ways or whatever, whatever the thing is, like to obey in the simplicity that the church is calling you to or something even simple like, you know, <clears throat> The rubrics, you know, and the general instruction for the Roman Missal say a slight bow of the head, you know, when approaching this, the Eucharist, as opposed to doing something more elaborate, you know. So we can train ourselves in in simplicity as well, mm -hmm. and and it's through that again being obedient. It's not like you're deciding that you're going to do it because you think it's better. Mm -hmm. You're doing it because that's what the church has set before you as you know what what the church is asking us to do right and you know so many of those things have to do with simple discipline too and uh you know i think uh, i think most of us can see very clearly that there is a lot of heated discussion that surround a lot of these these different things and we can be willful in one direction or another and again, I think this is why going back uh, to the scriptures and looking also at the fathers uh, in order that we might have a clear sense of the, the spirit of this obedience and that it is really fundamentally to conform us to Christ. And so anything that we do, any ascetical practice that we take up, any discipline that we're embracing, if it, if it lacks that, then it has very little value for us, if it's not leading us to a greater love of, of God, you know, of our Lord, of others, you know, if it's not shaping and forming our hearts uh, so that it is conformed to that of Christ, then it becomes suspect. And I think when the, I see a, so much anger, you know, I understand it because they're, you know, in the face of disorder and destructiveness, you know, people feel it very intensely and become, you know, anxious or angry, frustrated about it, especially when nothing is being done seemingly about it. And so they're, you know, the anger can become very deep. And I think we, we are tempted at that point to take the path of resentment rather than to take the path of this simple obedience 
to God and allow that to permeate everything about us and our attitude, including our attitude towards the, the church. Uh, Kentila Mesa, I've mentioned this a couple of times. He wrote a little book called Loving the Church. It's a little book. It's only about 100 pages long, but it's, it's beautifully written. I don't know if some of you know him. He was preacher to the papal household for years. I don't know if he is still or not, uh, but it's a beautiful little book, and it, it really helps to form and shape the way I think that we are called to look to the ch church, look at the church, how we're to pray for her, and how, how we see ourselves as part of the church as well. So I highly recommend it. It's very good, a brief read. Rachel, are you still with us? Did you have a question or a comment? Hi, yeah, I did. Um, okay. I thought we were running out of time, so. I, I had two points. You were speaking about conforming our wills to God's will and this through obedience um, to, to someone else and, and the religious community is superior. And it just, my thoughts go to, with, um, to how much discernment that must take from both mm -hmm. and how much trust in God mm -hmm. um, that requires for a superior mm -hmm. to guide another soul and how they must have to have learned obedience for a long time in the hard way, um, walking that path in order to even attempt humbly to try to guide a soul because ultimately they have to step back and or always know that God is the one that is acting. That's right. And that they're ultimately the servant of the one that is in their care. You know, it's not about power. You know, and I think that's where distortion often comes in. That they're really the servant of the one who's been given to their, you know, that is their directee and that they're not you know, to stand in a position of power over and above them, but rather to become their servants in the deepest kind of way. And you're right. It's only, you know, when they've been formed in that spirit of obedience and the obedience of Christ, that one comes to understand that. And the same would be true for parents, you know, in their children are entrusted to their parents, you know, in a sense that their parents don't own them. They're little... They're individual human beings, and so they're gifts of God, and they've been entrusted with their for formation, and so they aren't property, and that fundamentally sort of shifts the way that they they look at their 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 formation and their care, you know, and how they they, they are they're you know how they are to be shaped informed over the course of time in terms of their faith as well as a whole host of other ways but yeah your your point is a very good one and you, had, you said you had a second well 
so I just forgot my second, but you brought up a new one. Um, as far as parents go, I have seven children. Mm-hmm. Two of them are grown. Mm-hmm. When one has um, experienced you know, the, the culture, growing up in the culture without knowledge of Christ and who he is, mm-hmm. um, and my parents did the best job that they could, mm-hmm. of course, and they're they're pretty good parents, um, but immersed in a different culture than a Catholic culture and even knowing Christ, um, where one is learning obedience the hard way as, as they're also raising children. Do you have any points or something that can help parents with that or just living it? Just no, I, I have no advice. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're on your own. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think ultimately, for you know, we often have a tendency to complicate things in that regard, and ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, it 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 is God Himself who's revealed Himself to us and given us the means to live the life that He's called us to, and so the immersion in the sacramental life you know our mysticism if you will as catholic christians is always going to be sacramental you know it's uh, like our perception of god our contemplation of god is going to be in and through the ways that god has given us to encounter him in the most powerful way and so we we are taught we are formed we are shaped by the grace that god gives to us in the sacramental life and in and through the life of the prayer and the gift of the spirit that he's given to us And so it's fidelity to that reality that forms and shapes a heart that is pleasing to God. And if, you know, if a parent can do that, you know, it's profoundly formative of of their children. And I've often said this, you know, in the group, you know, for a child to see his father kneeling at the bedside praying that it, you know, shapes the imagination, the mind and the heart in a profound way. You know, they, they see their father kneeling before God, you know, seeking the grace and strength. And they might not understand this, you know, in this abstract way, but they have this really concrete image of it from early on and consistently over the course of time of their parents showing them to whom they looked to f- for life, for strength, for healing. And I think parents always want to keep this kind of simple and clear path before their eyes. You know, we get caught up in all kinds of, you know, theological and other kinds of machinations, and we we make it complex, you know, complicated and fraught with, you know, anger and frustration and argue about it. And, you know, where we lose sight of Christ himself in the gospel and how he engaged people with this kind of simplicity, both in his teaching, but ultimately in his life, how he engaged others as well. And it is to this reality that we are called to conform ourselves. And, you know, I think part of the, you know, the evil one's temptation, you know, at times is to distract us with these things that pull us off of the path that lead to Christ you know, to get us caught in our minds in such a way 
that we, we twist up the simplicity of the gospel and what has been revealed to us on the cross and in the gift of the Eucharist to, to make it unrecognizable, you know. And I think it has become unrecognizable or even unattractive to most people. Even Fulton Sheen said this, you know, so many people who reject Catholicism are rejecting what isn't really Catholicism. It's this distorted image that they've been presented with. And what most often has happened, what they've been presented with to presented with by us, you know, how this distorted image that really has you know, made it something unattractive rather than, than beautiful. The most powerful images of the faith are often the most simple. And I think parents can trust that. You know, the, the simple love on a daily day basis, the consistency, the constancy of it, the tenderness of a touch, you know, the constancy and encouragement, the constant witness, those are, those are the most powerful things in the world. You know, where children see unconditional love or what self-sacrifice means. You know, this, this brings them to the heart of the gospel. Eric, I'm so, we're already at quarter till. Do you mind if, okay. So why don't we stop there for the evening? I'm really pleased with the discussion. I mean, obedience, obedience is a harder thing, I think, to often wrap our minds around. And we want to keep our focus upon Christ. And I think we've been able to do that pretty well. And I look forward to you know, carrying on with this in the coming week. Okay. So thank you all. And we'll, when we close, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Father.